Let's start with the refuges and precepts. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama samputasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama samputasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama samputasa Udang saranang gachami, damang saranang gachami, sangang saranang gachami, dutiampi budang saranang gachami, dutiampi damang saranang gachami. Dutiampi sangang sarnang gachami, Tatiampi budang sarnang gachami, Tatiampi damang sarnang gachami, Tatiampi sangang sarnang gachami, Panati pata. Vairamani sikha padam samadhyami Adinadana Vairamani sikha padam samadhyami Abrahmacharya Vairamani sikha padam samadhyami Musawada Vairamani sikha padam samadhyami Sura Maria Majapamadatana Vairamani Sikha Padam Samadhyami Idame Silang Magapalanyanasa Pachayo Hotu So to continue with the exploration of the Satipatthana Sutta, just want to again read the opening line. This is the opening declaration. Bhikkhus, which is all of us, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and grief, for the disappearance of dukkha and discontent, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four Satipatthanas. It's good just to be reminded of what we're doing here. It's not, it's not an insignificant undertaking. So given the importance of this declaration, this is the direct path to realization, to the overcoming of suffering. Tonight I'd like to elaborate on a couple of lines from the sutta that Steve touched on last night. But I'd just like to explore them a bit further. 
So the sutta went on to say, a bhikkhu abides ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. So just inquire for a moment or imagine for a moment your own mind, even for a moment, free of desire and discontent. You know, what would that be like? Free of wanting, free of aversion. And we can get glimpses of this, you know, even for a moment or two. Not wanting, not aversive, not reacting. Just simply resting in the clear, open awareness of the present moment. It's a very easeful state when we're not wanting and we're not discontented. We just rest in openness, in presence. Some Tibetan teachings kind of remind us, and it's a phrase I like a lot, I think it's a good reminder for us all, rest your weary mind. In some way, I think that's what we're doing. We're resting our weary minds. So the question is, how do we accomplish this? How can we abide free from desire and discontent with regard to the world? In the context of this tradition, what this phrase refers to is the quality of samadhi. And that's a term Steve explored a little bit last night. It's generally translated as concentration or one-pointedness of mind. It means composure. It means unification of mind. The mind perfectly put together. It means being undistracted. When we're concentrated in the moment, our mind is not distracted from the moment. We're fully present. And with this quality of samadhi, this quality of composure, of undistractedness, brings about our feelings of a very deep sense of calm, of mental contentment. Samadhi, concentration in this sense, means the mind free of desire and discontent with regard to the world, with regard to the moment. So how to develop how to cultivate this very important state of samadhi that the Buddha is referring to here. Ajahn Suchito, who is one of, uh, he's actually the abbot now of Amavati uh, in England, from the Thai forest tradition. He talks about the development of samadhi as being the cultivation of embodied presence. I thought that was a very useful pointing. We settle back into the body, into the awareness of the body, and we allow the tensions and the knots, we allow them to unfold. We create the space. We create the space of awareness in which they will unwind. 
and this becomes a great healing process. So Ajahn Suchito talks of it in this way. He says, receiving joy is another way to say enjoyment, and samadhi is the art of refined enjoyment. It is based in skillfulness. It is the careful collecting of oneself into the joy of the present moment. I like this description of it because it kind of takes us out of that you know, heavy striving mode for something. And it suggests that it's much more, this quality of samadhi, of composure, of embodied presence, is much more about settling back into rather than looking for something out there. So it's a good reminder of how to cultivate this quality within us. What becomes pretty interesting as we do this, as we settle back into an open receptiveness, we begin to see, quite surprisingly, that even unpleasant sensations can be a source of happiness. It takes a while to learn this. <laughs> I remember when I was first practicing in India, kind of, I was in Bodh Gaya and I was with my teacher, Anagarika Manindra. And we were just in the bazaar, uh, you know, the little village and out of a little tea shop. And on that particular day, I had this really bad headache. Uh, and so I was just sitting there with him and we were talking and I was telling him, you know, I have this really bad headache. And he just looked at me and he said, oh, I hope you are enjoying it. <laughs> and it was such a novel thought. <laughs> How are we with unpleasant sensations? Filled with desire and discontent or free of desire and discontent? When the mind is in that place of collectedness, of samadhi, then we're simply open to that, we're receiving that. And there actually is a quality of happiness and contentment, even with unpleasant feelings. So Ajahn Sujita went on to say that samadhi is based in skillfulness. So what does this mean? It means that this quality of composure, of mental composure, rests on the foundation, the ethical foundation of non-harming. It rests on ethical conduct. That is the foundation of samadhi. We really need to understand this. Because without this foundation of ethical conduct, of non-harming, our minds are continuously filled with regret, remorse, disturbance, turbulence. If we're doing things in our lives that are continually causing disruption and harm to ourselves or others, it will be almost impossible for the mind to settle down in a deeply concentrated way. Meninger gave a good example of this. Uh, 
Because when we first came back from India and began teaching, this was in the mid-70s, we very rarely talked about ethical conduct, about sila. You know, we were all fired up about the meditation, we wanted everybody to share in the meditation, so we just talked about that. But it didn't take too long to realize that they cannot be divorced. Manindra gave the example of, you know, you're in a rowboat, trying to get to the other shore of the river, and you're rowing and rowing and rowing very hard, putting all of your effort and energy into it, but you don't untie the boat from the dock. No matter how much effort you put into it, you won't go anyplace. So he likened that to people meditating, trying to develop concentration without having established the foundation. Well, you all already have, just by being here and undertaking the precepts. Because from the time that we commit to them, the foundation is established. So we have that, and it's important to recognize its importance. In the world, we normally speak of ethical conduct as meaning the five precepts. On retreat... This foundation of samadhi, the understanding of ethical conduct, uh, becomes a bit more refined. This last winter I was doing a month-long retreat (coughs) at the Forest Refuge. And my yogi job was putting out the tea stuff and then putting the tea stuff away afterwards. So I was putting the tea away one day. And then I saw on the counter in the kitchen, of course we have permission to be in the kitchen since we're putting, you know, that's our yogi job. But on the counter of on the kitchen I saw some like fried tortillas that had been left over from lunch. And they were really good. I, I had enjoyed them at lunchtime. You know. And there they were just in this little plastic container. And they were just out there. <laughs> <laughs> And so I just took a few and then, you know, proceeded to put all the tea stuff away. And it's amazing, in my next sitting, actually even in the moment, but it really came, came strong in the sitting, it just didn't feel right. And I knew that nobody really cared and would have gladly offered it. But it really was taking what wasn't offered. You know, it was, it was there, but it wasn't, it wasn't out for the yogis. And it just reminded me of how even little things in the context of a retreat, we get very sensitive. Our standard of sila becomes very refined, and it's beautiful to be operating on that level. Uh, so it's a good lesson in just you know, observing how we are, both in this context and in the world. Now, in a community of people, this refinement of sila sometimes is about letting go of our own preferences, or somehow thinking that what we want is more important or more value than what somebody else might want in the community. If people had kind of contemplated this more, 
the 18-year window wars probably would have been shorter. You know, can we give up our preferences in the context of a community? I have one other little story. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, I haven't noticed it here lately, but over at the Forest Refuge, uh, sometimes they have the black olives and sometimes they have the green olives. And to my taste, the black olives are a little tasteless and the green olives have a little bit of, you know, a little bit of spice to them. So after the retreat, I was talking with one of the other teachers there, Sarah Daring, who's a wonderfully wise woman, an elder of our community. And we were talking, and I was just talking about my retreat and saying, you know, really, we, we really ought to get more of the green olives. <laughs> you know, the black olives don't make it. And she just turned to me and she said, you know, on this path of awakening, you're going to have to give up a lot more than olives. <laughs> and it's just the reminder, okay, what are our minds doing? You know, they're little things. But as our mind gets more still, as the samadhi factor, as that composure of mind becomes a little steadier, even little things really stand out. You know, and there's this beautiful refinement, potential refinement, you know, of our minds, of our behavior. What happens as we are established in this foundation of non-harming, of sila, in all of its aspects, the mind actually begins to relax into a place of relative ease, of contentment. We're not agitated as much. We actually settle back at least at times, into a relaxed and happy state. And it's said that happiness, in fact, is the proximate cause for concentration to arise. So don't ignore those times, and even if the time's just intermittent, you know, in the day, don't ignore those times when you're feeling contented, when you're feeling happy, when you're feeling at ease. Recognize it, pay attention to that, because that state becomes or can become the building blocks for strengthening the concentration. Now we talk a lot in the retreat about dukkha and suffering and the causes of suffering and how to relate to suffering. But in the most fundamental sense, we're really on a path of happiness. That's what it's about. I mean, I don't think any of you signed up to suffer. <laughs> There's plenty of suffering that comes, but the reason we're all here is that it's a path of happiness. You know, and that's what the Buddha was saying in his opening declaration of the Sutta. Okay, so how do we cultivate and deepen this quality of samadhi, of concentration, of composure? We do it through the continuity of well-established mindfulness. 
Continuity of mindfulness is what leads to samadhi. So that's very straightforward. And we can do this in several ways, and I want to talk a bit about how we can actually practice this. And we've been talking a lot about using the metta, the mindful abiding in metta, as a way of concentrating the mind. And we, eat, we may each have our own way of settling into this. You know, it might be the traditional phrases... It might be just settling into a friendly feeling. Sometimes what I do is I imagine if I'm particularly difficult, have difficulty in kind of calling up the feeling, I'll imagine you know, some of my teachers or great beings out there, you know, like Deepama and the Dalai Lama and you know, whoever comes to mind, out there and they're just radiating the metta down. And so I just get on the receiving end of it. Yeah. And so that often calls up the feeling. And then I just let the feeling spread out you know, to the people around me. So this is one way. Continuity of mindfulness. Then we move into developing the practice of a directed awareness on a single object. It could be the in-out, the rising falling, it could be sitting and touching, it could be the movement of the step in the walking meditation. And our practice in this regard is simply coming back again and again and again to the intended object of concentration. I want to read something which many of you have heard many times but it is such a clear description of this kind of practice. If the heart wanders or is distracted, bring it back to the point quite gently. And even if you did nothing in the whole of your hour, but bring your heart back, even though it went away every time you brought it back, your hour would be very well employed. That's St. Francis de Sales, I think 17th century or 18th century Catholic spiritual guide. The training is the same. Even if your heart goes away, every time you bring it back to the point, your hour would be well employed because that's the training. It's the coming back again and again and again. You know, it's a bit like training a puppy to sit. You know, if you, do you have the experience of a young puppy? You know, sit. <laughs> and it stays for about a half a second and then it's running around. Okay, sit, sit, sit. If one is gently persistent, then at least with most puppies, <laughs> After some time, it actually will sit and stay for a bit. Well, our minds are like that. You know, we keep coming back. Steve spoke last night about setting the intention for the duration of our continuous mindfulness. You know, suggested maybe from the time you get up through the first sitting or from breakfast to lunch. That's great if you can do it. 
I'm going to suggest the other end of the spectrum. How about setting your intention for half a breath? Not even a whole, a whole breath is too much. It is too much. I mean, haven't you noticed how in the course of one breath your mind will kind of skitter off? If you set the intention for half a breath, did it. (laughs) Out breath. That actually is within our capacity. We actually can sustain our attention, sustain mindfulness for half a breath. Now the miracle is that that's all we have to do. Half breath, half breath, half breath, half breath. Lo and behold, the mind starts to stabilize. The attention starts to stabilize. So be modest in your aspiration, but persistent, and you will see that the concentration begins to grow. We can also develop concentration not only in this directed awareness, but as you know, we can also develop samadhi in, a, in an open, choiceless awareness. We were simply settled back and open to, mindful of, whatever object is arising in the field of our experience. I want to read to you. This is some of the meditation instructions from Mahasi Sayadaw, who is kind of the grandfather of this particular tradition of practice. He was the teacher of Sayadaw Upandita. He, he was really, a, he was a great, uh, he was both a great enlightened being and also a great scholar of Buddhism. And so his teachings just interweave tremendous precision and understanding of the path uh, in the context of all the Buddhist teachings. So he said, the actual method of practice in Vipassana meditation is to observe the successive occurrences of seeing, hearing, and so on at the six sense doors. However, it will not be possible for a beginner, and a beginner may be the first 20 years, 30 years. However, it will not be possible for a beginner to follow these or all successive incidences as they occur, because the mindfulness, concentration, and knowledge are still very weak. So we instruct the yogis to note the rising falling of the abdomen, and here, whether it's the rising falling or the in-out. But when the power of concentration have strengthened, yogis extend this method of meditation to note all that happens at the six sense doors. So it's important to understand that there are these two aspects of developing proper mindfulness and concentration. We start with the rising falling or the the in and out. We start with the primary object, come back to it again and again, and as the attention is stabilized, then it opens up and we simply note whatever it is that's arising. It becomes very open, very choiceless. Our practice is really the skillful interweaving of these two ways. The Buddha gave some specific recommendation. He said, focusing on a single object is helpful, particularly when you're sluggish 
or you're distracted. So when you're sluggish or distracted, then narrowing the focus of attention because it brings about this feeling of internal sense of joy and serenity. We're gathering in the scattered mind. And out of that joy, then clarity comes. Then when the mind is collected again, we open it to the whole range of objects that arise. Now, after some time, and you may probably, or you may be at this point already, but in practice, at a certain point, we get a very intuitive feel. You know, is it, should we spend time just on the, just on the breath, just on the primary object? When is it time to open? When do we come back in? You know, so you can trust that. And it's really very simple. If one approach is not working, try the other. <laughs> so this is very pragmatic. This, not, this is not about adhering to some formal set of instructions. It's all about being mindful in the moment and what supports that, what is the best way to do it. When I first began my meditation, I had been in the Peace Corps introduced to kind of the Buddhist teaching, got very excited about the possibility of meditation. And I think I mentioned the opening night, you know, I came back to this country, realized I needed a teacher, went back to India, ended up in Bulgaria. I started to practice. I had zero concentration. I mean, my mind would just wander. All I'd sit for an hour and think. So over the years, I've worked in many different ways to develop that particular quality. It can be done, because I know where I started from. It's really a question of practice, of perseverance. I want to share with you some of the particular ways that were helpful to me in the course of my training, uh, training the mind in composure. One of the biggest helps was in moving about, as I would move about or as you move about, you know, in the building or outside. Notice the difference between kind of being mindful that you're moving and that embodied presence that Ajahn Sujita was talking about, where you feel the sensation of the movement. Do you hear the difference? You can be mindful that you're moving, more or less mindful. But to feel the sensations in the movement, you really need to be embodied. You need to be in the body, you need to be present. And as you do that, the concentration gets much stronger and it feels good because we're fully in ourselves in that moment. So this is a way to practice throughout the day. You know, in just the ordinary activities of the day, are you feeling the sensations of the movement as you move about? Very helpful. Slowing down was a big help. 
the beauty of the retreat is you really have no place to go. I mean, aside from your yogi job, there's nothing you have to do. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is a rare opportunity. <laughs> you know, you have no responsibilities other than being in the moment, being present, being awake, being enlightened, moment to moment. What a gift. So take your time. You know, and it's not a question of slowing down. It's not a question of kind of struggling and holding yourself back like you're reining in a horse because that just creates a lot of tension. It's more simply settling back into the body, enjoying the movement, really having a sense of, uh, just a sense of care, a sense of respect you know, for what you're doing. It's much more enjoyable. But we're not in the habit of that. We're in the habit of rushing. You know, and so we really have to practice that settling back. Notice the times of rushing. That's a very good feedback. That feeling of rushing is telling you that the mind is ahead of itself. The mind is ahead of the body. We're toppling forward energetically. So use it as a good signal. As soon as you feel that you're rushing, settle back, take more care. Rushing doesn't always mean you're moving quickly. You can rush moving very slowly. It was very uh, interesting to me, for myself, to observe the difference between how I was when I was doing walking meditation and then moving just as slowly how I was when I was going to lunch. It was really different. In the walking meditation, I wasn't going anyplace. When the lunch bell rang, even though I was moving just as slowly inside, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, was that, it was that energetic topple. So we can pay attention to this. You know, it's, it's a very good feedback for us. Something else that had a huge impact for me in my walking meditation, and this, what I'm about to suggest, will not be for everyone. You know, or, so it's just a suggestion. You can try it if you find it helpful. You can use it. If not, there's no need to. For me, it was helpful at a certain point in my practice to go from three-part walking to six-part walking. That is dividing the step into six parts, which were lifting and then dividing the forward movement into two parts. So like, and you can name it anything, it's like move and swing, something like that. And so it's lift, move, swing, and then the coming down was in three parts, of lowering and then just placing when it first touches and then pressing with the weight. It made a big difference. My mind got a lot more concentrated as I did that. Again, depending on where you are in your own energy rhythm, that might be helpful. Maybe it's not appropriate, but you can experiment and see. 
another way of developing the concentration, the samadhi. And all of these just strengthen this quality of composure. Can you have the intention to be mindful of the really small things, like movements of the hands? And I found over the years that I got pretty good at being aware of my legs moving through all the walking meditation. You know, so whenever I'd be moving about, I could, I could notice that. I wasn't nearly as mindful of the things my hands were doing as what my legs were doing. Oh, <laughs> okay. We move our hands a lot. We use our hands and arms a lot in the course of a day. Can we bring that careful attention to it? Shifts of posture. You know, both the big shifts and also the small shifts. You know, in in a sitting. Just those slight... Just that. Are we really mindful of it? Or do we do it mechanically? Okay, now I'm going to give you your biggest challenge of the retreat. The secret to samadhi. Being mindful when you're in your room. It's difficult. Somehow we can even be walking very mindfully to the room and even opening the door and reaching and touching and pulling. And we're in the room. (laughs) It's like, we're safe. (laughs) Or we're out of bounds or something. It is quite amazing how difficult it can be to sustain the same degree of care. It's a practice. You know, all of it is about deconditioning those habits which are not serving us and cultivating habits which do serve us. So give some attention to that. Another thing that was a tremendous help. And these these were just all the little things that over the years, you know, as I paid more attention to, helped my mind get settled. And my mind was a hard nut to crack. <laughs> Goenkaji, one of my other teachers, he used to have what he called in his courses vow hours where you would come in and you would take the vow not to move for that hour. It was intense, especially in the beginning years. You know, take the vow for an hour not to move and sometimes the pain would get really intense. And you know. So it took tremendous kind of determination to do that. I don't know, as the Dharma has come to America, you know, we've kind of evolved into the upper middle path. (laughs) And so we've changed the vow hours a little bit. The vow whatever. (laughs) If you can do a vow hour, that's great. But maybe that really, it just is too much and the mind is not in the place where you're ready to do that. Do a half hour. Do 15 minutes. Do 10 minutes you will get the sense of what it means to sit with that determination for however long you do it 
Let me sit and not move. Let me die. I am just going to be here with whatever arises. That is a very powerful resolve for however long. You will see that it has a tremendous effect on the quality of your mindfulness. And concentration comes from continuity of mindfulness. Okay, so all of these are just suggestions. You know, you can, you can try those that seem might be helpful. With all of them, there is the fine-tuning of right effort. You know, so it's not too tight, not too loose. And Rebecca on Friday night is going to really explore what right effort means because it's such a critical aspect of how we undertake this. The development, the gradual development of samadhi, that composure of mind that brings contentment, that brings ease, bears many fruits for us. First, it helps to keep the hindrances at bay. When the mind is concentrated, the hindrances don't find room to manifest as much. Samadhi overcomes the forces you know, of lust and desire in the mind. Why? Because we're enjoying a more fulfilling kind of happiness. This is very important to realize. You know, we think sometimes, oh, I have to give up all the pleasures, you know, the ordinary sense pleasures or worldly pleasures. Once we've tasted, even to some extent, the happiness of a concentrated mind, it's no big renunciation. Deepama, this wonderful teacher from India who, who had extraordinary samadhi, she once sat in samadhi for three days. She sat down and three days later she got up. What else could we do nonstop for three days that would satisfy us? You know, we would get incredibly irritated even about the most enjoyable kind of thing we would eat for three days, sex for three days, you know. <laughs> but the enjoyment, the happiness of samadhi, of concentration is such, it is so fulfilling and so complete. So this is what we're opening into. It brings about this great kind of happiness. Over time, through our practice, what happens is our basic, I don't know if I'll express this exactly right, but our basic default level of samadhi rises. You know, you, maybe you know from skiing, during ski season, you know, the ski resorts will give you the reports of the base, how, how deep the, ba- the, snow, the base of snow is. You know, good skiing, the better the base. What happens in our practice is that our samadhi base gets deeper. You know, it becomes the default position. It still has lots of ups and downs, but over time you can really see the difference. You know, if you look back, Many of you have been practicing a long time. You know, maybe you look back five years or ten years, 
And notice the difference between then and now. And this just continues to happen the more consistent we are in our practice. So what happens is it affects the way we're living in the world. As the base of samadhi deepens within us, we really are creating an inner environment of peace, which we inhabit. And I don't mean to suggest that it's some unshakable state and we're never going to be disturbed again. It's not that. But the more we practice, it's what we come back to. That becomes our resting place. The Buddha was very clear that samadhi is not the final goal of practice. It's not what we're practicing for. It's a skillful means. It is not liberation, but it plays an essential role on this path of awakening. So this is what he said. He said, lack of, this is the Buddha's words, lack of respect for concentration is one of the causes for the disappearance of Dharma understanding in the world. So that's, I think, a very pointed statement. You know, it's really saying how important it is. Some years ago, I was reading a book about the tea, the Japanese tea ceremony and the whole art of tea. And, you know, it's quite ancient. It goes back. And one of the founding masters of tea, you know, tea as a spiritual practice, not as the break in between sittings. <laughs> one of the founding masters of tea, and I'm... I don't know if I'm saying his name right, Rikyu. This is what he said. And when I read this, he was talking this maybe in the, I don't know, 12th century, 11th century, about the, the practice of tea. It so really caught my eye. He was saying, I have no doubt that within 10 years, the fundamental way of tea will decline and perish. When it has perished, people will believe, on the contrary, that it is flourishing. And that, when I read that, I thought, boy, that's a wake-up. The Buddha said that lack of respect for concentration is the cause for the decline of understanding of the Dharma in the world. And so this is an important thing. This, this is not... This is not insignificant. And it doesn't mean that we get all tied up in struggle and striving and all of that, which doesn't help anyway. It doesn't help our concentration. It means we have to understand in a balanced way, okay, this is important, developing this composure of mind, this embodied presence. And so we practice it. We practice it with patience and with ease. So the challenge for each one of us is to find what are the skillful means for each one of us, and they may be different, what are the skillful means that will help us strengthen and deepen this quality within us? And a lot of the work you'll be doing here on retreat is just this exploration. 
what really helps. I'm only a third through. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll just start and we'll stop where we stop. The second phrase from the sutta that I'll at least touch on, the first was abiding free of desire and discontent with regard to the world. That is the understanding of samadhi and the development, the cultivation of it. Later in the sutta, the Buddha talks of and Steve did read this last night briefly he said the instruction in regard to the body one abides contemplating the body internally abides contemplating it externally abides contemplating both internally and externally okay we could read this and I had read that many many times yeah, internally, externally, both internally and externally, went on to the next thing. You know, and this is part of a refrain that's repeated thirteen different times in the sutta. So again, when we really pay attention to the Buddha's words, okay, there's something important here. There's something important about how we should be practicing. We're quite familiar, I think, with contemplating the body internally. I want to talk about contemplating externally because we don't talk much about it and there are many nuances in our practice that are revealed when we understand what this means. Contemplating or being mindful of the body externally means being mindful of the physical actions of others. So that we're aware, when the mind is drawn externally, we're aware and we're mindful as people are walking, as people are eating, as people are doing their yogi jobs, we apply mindfulness to that. Mindful that that person is walking, mindful that that person is eating, mindful that that person is doing whatever. Now this is quite in contrast to what usually happens when our mind is drawn out. Oh, that person's walking too fast, that person's walking too slow. You know, they're not doing their yogi job well. We're having all of these comments and we're not applying this mindfulness externally. Do you see the difference? No. <laughs> Let me go on. <laughs> One of the patterns I would see in my mind when I was on retreat, and it was totally, it was both ironic and useless as a mental pattern. I would be sitting in the dining room, you know, and kind of maybe glancing around as one is wont to do at times, and noticing somebody who I thought wasn't being very mindful. 
and my mind would comment to myself, boy, they're not being very mindful. <laughs> and then usually it didn't take too long to realize that, of course, my mind was doing the very thing that I was commenting on, <laughs> you know, and just seeing the ridiculousness of it. That all happened because I was not applying this mindful externally, just being mindful of what I was seeing and caught up in my reaction or judgment. From the other side, have you noticed that when you're mindful of somebody who is really walking very carefully, very mindfully, when you're in the presence, when you're aware, when you're seeing that, that it actually induces a state of samadhi within oneself. And this is why the Buddha suggested associating with people who were concentrated, who were mindful, because we catch it. It's like, it's like an infectious enlightenment factor. You know? And so that, that mindfulness of the external really can help our concentration when we see it in others. And it also can remind us that our own practice is really an offering. Now it's an offering to everyone here. There's a whole part on mindfulness of speech which I'll just leave for now. Just as we can be mindful of somebody's physical actions externally, we can also be mindful of externally moods, mind states, and emotions. Or again, we're aware of a mind state or an emotion in someone else, and instead of our initial or habituated reactive mind to it, we simply are abiding Oh, this is arising. This state is arising in this person. It actually helps us develop uh, some sense of empathy, some sense of connectedness. If it's something unwholesome that we see, we remain equanimous. If it's something wholesome that we see, it inspires us. There's just one story I want to mention in this regard. It happened at a Buddhist Christian conference that I was at, at Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky. And it was the meeting, there were 25 Buddhist teachers and 25 uh, mostly Trappist and Benedictine uh, monks. And some very, you know, abbots of different monasteries. The Dalai Lama was there that year. And in the closing remarks of the conference, the abbot of Gethsemane. He said that what most moved him in this whole exchange, and we were there about four or five days, a lot of talking and dialogue, what most moved him was one day as he came out of the chapter house, which is where we were meeting, and walking down the hall, he saw the Dalai Lama standing in front of a statue of Mary and just bowing and paying respects. I mean, even now when I think of it, it's just so moving. You know, 
It was so genuine. The Dalai Lama was not performing for anybody. He recognized the spiritual importance you know, of that statue, and he was paying respects. And that, seeing that mindfulness externally, was more moving and more meaningful to the abbot and the monks than, than all of the words that were said. So there's great power in this. You know, when we are paying attention, both internally and externally, tremendous openings can take place. The very last part of this instruction, contemplate internally, externally, and both internally and externally. Okay, so with this, this is not just a little extra repetition the Buddha tacked on. It means something. And that is moving away from the sense that something is in me or something is in others. For example, I have a pleasant feeling or we notice, oh, he or she is having a pleasant feeling. This third instruction is seeing it simply as an objective arising, there is a pleasant feeling. Not belonging to me, not belonging to another. And so this contemplation opens the door to anatta, the understanding of selflessness. It's the experience of all phenomena free of any notion of ownership. Experience doesn't belong to anyone. It is just arising. And it is this jewel of wisdom, this understanding of the selfless nature of all experience, which gives rise to that wonderful aspiration of bodhicitta that aspiration that our practice of awakening be for the welfare and benefit of all beings. One of the great Tibetan masters, Dugo Kense Rinpoche, he just captured the relationship of selflessness and compassion so clearly. He said, when you recognize the empty selfless nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others will dawn uncontrived and effortless. So this is where it all comes together. We contemplate internally, externally, both. We see the emptiness, the selflessness of all phenomena. Out of that understanding of selflessness, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. This is where our practice is leading. Let's sit for a few minutes.
settling into the body, embodied presence. The human body, at peace with itself, is more precious than the rarest gem. Cherish your body. It is yours this one time only. The human form is one with great difficulty. It is easy to lose. All worldly things are brief, like lightning in the sky. This life you must know as the tiny splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that disappears even as it comes into being. Therefore set your aspirations and make use of every day and night to achieve them. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.